Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Isaiah 53 said so, Psalm 22 said so, so many other Old Testament passages prophesied his suffering, but they couldn't see that part. All they could see is the ruling and reigning sovereign. So when they saw Jesus and realized he's the Messiah, they're like, hey, this is it. Are you now going to set up the kingdom? They often ask him that question. Part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Treasure and the Pearl. Today we start with the parable of the pearl of great price and then the parable of the dragnet. Now these earthly stories, which have heavenly meanings, are meant to help us understand what the Lord wants us to know. So let's pick up in Matthew 13, starting in verse 45. The pearl of great price, this second parable, it speaks to us of the church. And you'll see how beautifully this picture comes together. As he says, the kingdom of heaven again is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who having found one pearl of great price went and sold all he had and bought it. Pearls are an interesting aberration in nature. They're actually created in oysters and they're created because of a wound to the oyster. A grain of sand will work its way and find its way in and become an irritation in the side of that oyster and the oyster begins to secrete the stuff that hardens to protect itself from that that wound as it were and that secretion becomes a beautiful pearl now there's a picture for us there spiritually i'm not spiritualizing that reality i'm just saying we can see a parallel because it was through the wound that our lord took in his hands in his feet in his side that, that the church has been birthed, that this beautiful pearl to the Lord has been birthed. Well, kingdom of heaven, like a merchant seeking goodly pearls. Now, pearls are meant to be displayed. Oh, I, I failed to mention one thing culturally as to the buried treasure. I should throw it out there for you because it kind of helps just reading all of that. In those days, the days in which these things were written, Banks wouldn't have been the safest place for your money. I'm not even sure that you could have found a bank in the sense that we know it. But there were people that you could deposit your money with. And if things went well and they weren't robbed or dishonest, you might get it back. But many people just buried their money. Why? You knew where you buried it. No one else knew. You could dig it up when you needed it. And so when he talks about burying a treasure in a field, understand culturally, they would have all been tracking with him perfectly. They were just needing to learn something spiritually. He was talking about something physical. They understood. We'll see that's always been his method in the parables in order to teach something spiritual that they yet to understand. Well, when it gets to the pearls, not meant to be buried or hidden away. No, they're precious, but they're meant to be displayed. Jesus tells us, of course, the church, the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And this beautiful pearl, it's a picture of how Jesus sees his church with all our falls, faults and failures and, and all that we fail to represent him in. He still sees us as precious. Well, when he'd found this one pearl of great price, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Some have read into this the idea that if you give all you have, then you can buy your way into the kingdom of God. 
It's more than aberrant. That is demonic, that teaching, that idea. And here's why. First of all, we have nothing with which to pay. And that's why that song, and we sing it sometimes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The idea that we could pay for our sin, pay that great debt, buy our way into the kingdom, it's absolutely unbiblical. Jesus, though, is the one who sees the church as a precious pearl. And he, having found this great pearl, goes and sold all he had and bought it. Now, there are a couple questions that make this abundantly clear. Mark in chapter 8, and you don't have to go there, two verses, 37 and 38, ask a couple very important questions. The first He says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? That's a very important question. If you've yet to give your life to the Lord Jesus, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world? Listen, you're never going to do that anyway. You might get a small piece, but other people are after it as well. And if you could gain it all and you lost your soul, well, what would be the profit? Listen, there's no profit in that. Why? Because everything you can gain in this world is temporal, but your soul is eternal. You were created for eternity and you will live forever. You'll either live with the Lord or separated from the Lord. You'll either be in glory in heaven and then on earth when he's on earth, or you will forever be separated from him in a place he calls hell. And whatever you imagine hell to be, you just need to read the Gospels and see how Jesus describes it to know that's not somewhere you want to end up. But 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 here's here's the point, the point I'm trying to make. First question is, what would it profit? And there is no profit. The second question, though, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? I would suggest to you a man would give anything and everything he had. But 1 Corinthians says, if I gave my body to be burned, if I gave all my possessions to the poor but have not love, it profits me nothing again. No profit in that and no hope in that. Why? Because there's nothing I could do to redeem myself. My situation was too desperate. A guilty sinner in the sight of a holy God needs to be redeemed by a plan acceptable to God, by a sacrifice acceptable to God. And so the problem with mankind trying to redeem himself, the idea that I'll sell all I have and I'll give it to the... No, listen. If you find it and you sell all you have, what you have to offer God is not a drop, a drop in a sea of of need, of guilt, of of debt. Not a drop of payment in a sea of debt. And so... Jesus is the one who sees this precious pearl. He's the one who sees the the treasure of Israel and the precious pearl of the church. And you've got to know Jesus died for Israel. Why? Because they were promised that Messiah would come, the Savior would redeem. And many among Israel died in faith. You read Hebrews 11, it talks about so many who died in faith. What does that mean? They died believing the Messiah would come, that the Savior would redeem. And because they died looking forward to, as it were, the cross, 
They were accepted by the Lord. We now look back at the cross and we're saved in the very same way. And you got to know there's always been and will always be just one plan of salvation. And that is Jesus died for our sins. He died for the sins of Israel. He died for the sins of the church. He died for the sins of the world. He is plan A and there is no plan B. So Jesus is the one who sold it all and bought that precious pearl. Philippians, by the way, tells us that he emptied himself, who being in the form of God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus actually left heaven and became a man. And he became a man that, well, he became a man and and was born the same way we're born, only of the Virgin Mary. And then he lived among us, and not just a man among men, but a servant among men. And then he died for us, and not just a death, but a criminal's death, a painful, humiliating, shameful death on the cross. Why did he do it? it because he loved that precious pearl, and because he loved that buried treasure, and his heart to restore both, to bless both. To use both. Well, Jesus paid it all. We'll sing it at some point. Too beautiful of a song and too wonderful of a message. We find yet another parable, very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares, where we see ultimately there'll be a judgment. And we read in verse 47, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. They sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them in the furnace of fire. And there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth as he did. In that parable of the wheat and tares, he says judgment is coming and there will be a separation. And I don't want anyone to miss the importance of these terms. He says they throw the bad away. They separate the wicked from among the just. Now, you might not consider yourself a bad person or a wicked person. And if you're comparing yourself, of course, with the worst on the planet, you're probably not that bad or wicked. But you need to know that unless you see yourself the way God sees you and realize that he loves you in spite of those realities, you'll never be saved. You see, if you cling to the idea that I'm not that bad, I'm a good person, you're not good enough for God. Well, I'm not as bad as some. That may be true. I hope so. But the Bible says our hearts themselves are desperately wicked and deceitful. And when I realized I've got a wicked, deceitful heart, I say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When I realize my life has been an abomination in the sight of the one who gave me life, then I say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the whole point, you see, is that we realize and recognize our great need for his forgiveness and his great compassion and mercy and And offering it, the worse we see ourselves as, the greater the grace of God is magnified in our eyes. And that's how Israel stumbled, see? They thought they weren't so bad. They thought God chose them because of something in them instead of in spite of them. And the church, the same thing can and often does happen. Well, 
This dragnet, this picture of the fisherman throwing out his nets and pulling in the fish and separating the good from the bad, the wicked from the just, it's just a, a parable, I think, really, to help Peter and the guys. And, and here's why. The very next thing he says is, have you understood all these things? And, and their answer is like, yes, Lord. And it's sort of like, yeah, we get it now. And here's what I was thinking. That he's told them all these parables and I've seen it. It doesn't happen that often, but sometimes I look out and I see that people are just like kind of, you know, deer in the headlights, just staring and not really getting it. And I'm like, oh, clearly I need a better illustration here. Something's not working. I think that happened with Jesus and his disciples. And I think it happened a lot with Jesus and his disciples. Now I think he's looking at them and, and, and he's looking and he's saying, oh, I think he's getting it. Matthew's sitting yeah, and he's, and he looks at those guys and he's like, hmm. Let me explain it to you one more way, guys. There's this fisherman, and he's got a net, and he throws it out, and he pulls in the fish, and then we separate. He says, do you understand? And they, oh, yeah, I get it now. Well, of course, they were fishermen. And for some of us, that's what it takes. Something that meets us right where we're at, that connects to us in our own vocab, in our own mindset, and we're like, now I get it. And that's always our hope is that Every person who comes will get it, will understand that, hey, God loves Israel and God loves the church and God loves the world. And by the way, if I didn't mention it, I think I did, but just in case, there were many in Israel that couldn't see how God could love anyone but Israel. Tragically, today, there are many in the church who failed to see how God could love anyone but the church. There are actually believers in the church that think Jesus died for the church. That's not what the Bible says. It says God so loved the world. Well, how could he love the world? Well, how could he not love the world? He made us. He, he sees us. He, he knows our frame that we're but dust. He, he realizes that the struggles we go through, why he's walked in our shoes. He's walked in our flesh. He knows what it is to be tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He knows what it is to be mocked and rejected and ridiculed and, and to be abused. He knows what it is to suffer and die. And to die not for anything he did, but for what others did. Now, God, how could he not love the world? It's his world created by him and for him. And so, don't fall into that trap of thinking, well, God loves us, but how could he love them? No, he loves us all. And he's demonstrated that love in sending his son Jesus to die for us all. That Israel could be saved that the church could walk and be saved, that, that the world has that opportunity as well to come to him. Know this, though. If you come from a Jewish background, that's your heritage nationally or, you know, naturally, it was to a Jew that Jesus said, Nick, you must be born again. And so Jews aren't going to be in the kingdom just because he made promises to Abraham, but they have opportunity to come into the kingdom because he made promises to Abraham. But they come the same way that you come, through the cross, through Jesus. No one will make it to heaven except through Jesus. Unless you believe I am, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. Well, it brings us then to the conclusion of these things. And he says, have you understood all these things there in verse 51? And they said, yes, Lord. And he says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. 
what he's saying is now you're putting together what you've known, the old, and, and what you're beginning to see, the new, and it's all going to come into focus. You see, it was new to them that Messiah would suffer and die. It was throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 said so. Psalm 22 said so. So many other Old Testament passages prophesied his suffering, but they couldn't see that part. All they could see is the ruling and reigning sovereign. So when they saw Jesus and realized he's the Messiah, they're like, hey, this is it. Are you now going to set up the kingdom? They often ask him that question. Are you now? Can we be at your right hand and your left hand? No, you don't get it, fellas. I'm here to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. To, not to be served, but to serve and to die. And so that's the new. It was there in the old, but he's now revealing it, manifesting it, making it clear. Israel scattered, regathered, restored. Well, they knew that. That was in the old, but the Gentiles included? Oh, that was there too. But, but, but again, now it's being opened up to them. And that's what he's trying to do as we open the word. We go to the history of the Old Testament so we can lay a foundation and we see the teaching of the new so that we can apply it to our lives. Well, it brings us to their response. And, and as was often the case, there were four responses to this teaching and to these parables of Jesus. Having finished these parables, we're told he departed. In verse 54, when he'd come to his own country, he taught in their synagogues. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? The first response was astonishment. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to be blown away by the Lord and just in awe of the Lord. But it's possible to be astonished and yet not converted. Their astonishment led to curiosity. How is he doing these things? Where did he get this teaching? These words and this, these works, this wisdom. Where? How? They were curious. And that's the second thing. Astonishment and curiosity. But their curiosity failed to convict them, to bring about confession and, and conversion. We want to make sure that doesn't happen to us. Astonished by the Lord, we should be. Curious about the Lord, I hope you're more today than ever before. But the third reaction, and it was the foundation of their problem at this point, was familiarity. And, and here it says, verse 55, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas and his sisters, are they not with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now here was the problem, and this is the heart of the problem. They were so familiar with him in the flesh. They had seen him growing up in the neighborhood. They knew his half-brothers and half-sisters. They knew the children of Mary and Joseph, birthed after Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And they're like, hey, this is the kid down the street. This is the carpenter's kid. This is Simon's brother. This is, is Judas's brother. We know him. How is it that he's doing these things? How is it that he knows these things? Where did he get this wisdom from? And here's the great danger. For those of you who've grown up in the church, 
who've studied the Bible all your life, you can become so familiar that you think, Matthew's Gospel, I've studied that over and over. What do I have to learn from Matthew's Gospel? Or I know the Jesus story. I know all about Christmas. I know all about Easter. Listen, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I grow in the Lord, the more I am astounded by the Lord. And the more I'm in the Word, the, the more I realize I have so much to learn. There, there's so much here. And the most important things, they're always going to be the obvious things. They'll always be the things on the surface. But the Lord wants to take us deeper, deeper into him and deeper with him. At the same time, these guys, because they were so familiar with him, they they had trouble really recognizing him. And you got to understand, and we cut them a little bit of slack. If Jesus were living in your neighborhood today, and he grew up with your friends and went to school with you and your friends. And then all of a sudden you notice, man, he's always acting so perfect. And, well, yeah, he was. You know, he thinks he's the son of God. Have you heard he's saying that about himself now? Who does he think he is? Well, the son of God, see? He didn't just think it, though. He knew it. And his mother knew it, too. The angel had appeared. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the bottom line is their astonishment bred curiosity and their familiarity, well, it led to unbelief. And that was the fourth response and it's devastating. They were offended, we read. They stumbled over who they thought him to be. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, two things, and we'll share in communion together. Unbelief. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Unbelief is a deadly, perilous trap and sin. But it's not just that he didn't do much because of they didn't believe in him. It goes further than that. Mark's gospel, I believe in chapter 8, tells us that when he began to teach the very thing I'm teaching, that God loved someone more than that little group gathered together, in his case, in a synagogue, that God loved the Gentiles and not just Israel. They took him outside, gnashing their teeth, and tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to murder him for even implying that God loved Gentiles. And there are a lot of people today that if you say, you know, God loves Israel, they'll get very strange about that. And if you say God loves the world, there are people who will just fight and argue about, no, no, he only loves the church. But, but here's the deal. It, it, it's unbelief. It's not seeing the truth. It's not realizing that God's word has to be true. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world. That means if you're a believer here, he loves you. And if he was faithful to Israel, and he was and is, he'll be faithful to his church as he's promised. But if you're an unbeliever here today, or you're someone who considers yourself a believer, but you really don't know if you've given your life to the Lord, you, you kind of philosophically accept who he is and what he's done. Listen, Unless you receive him as Lord and Savior, you'll perish in your sins. For it's as many as received him, to these he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who've believed on his name. So today, we have to make a choice. 
open our hearts to the Lord Jesus, receive him as Lord and Savior. If you're a Christian, then you just need to chew on the things that we've looked at together. Consider those things that that the Lord loves the world around and and that there is a judgment coming and, and his angels, not us, his angels will separate the evil from the good. But but you want to make sure that you're in that camp where you're just, where you're righteous, where you've been deal, dealt with just as if you'd never sinned. In Romans 10:17, Paul tells us, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is not just a one and done type of deal where we hear the word of God, place our faith in it and are saved. But our faith is a fruit of the Spirit and it grows and continues to grow for the rest of our lives, but it needs to be watered. The living water of Jesus gives us life, cleanses us, grows us, and sanctifies us. And no matter how well you think you know the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will always have more to teach you, so stay in it. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.